Hello, and welcome to Life Stories, a podcast where I talk to memoir writers about their lives and the art of writing memoir. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is David Stewart McLean. His memoir is The Answer to the Riddle is Me. It's a memoir of amnesia, subtitled, and it's just out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And David, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's just plunge into a cold open, much like the memoir does. It starts with you snapping into consciousness on a train platform someplace and you have no idea where you are or even who you are. Yeah, so I wake up on a train platform in Secunderabad, India, and I just suddenly snap to. The metaphor I use for it a lot is uh, I like a daguerreotype, like early photography, where they coated a plate with a copper plate with chemicals and then exposed it to the light. And that's sort of what my brain was like. It was just coated with chemicals and then I just snap too. And so that time is really sort of singed on me. Although you were fortunate enough to find somebody who could help you through your disorientation, as you write about it, some of the initial assumptions that were made about your condition complicated the path, at least in the initial stages of your recovery. The guy who met me, who found me, was uh, Rajesh, and he just assumed, with good reason, that I was a foreigner whacked out on drugs and that he would take care of me. And as soon as he told me that, I made up a story to go along with that. I just was like, oh, I'm a drug addict. Now I know who I am. And so I created this false narrative of this woman, Christina, this ugly woman who she and I did drugs together in terrible apartments. And I felt so sorry for what I had done because Rajesh clearly wanted to help me, but he was also sort of scolding me at the same time. And I was taxing his patience. But he did get you into medical attention. He got me to a guest house where they take lost foreigners. And he took me there for a specific reason, because this woman, Mrs. Lee, who ran the place, her son went to Singapore, and she said some bad men had given him some drugs. And three months later, his ashes were sent back to her, and she kept them in a box in the corner of her room, of her living room. And so the two of them basically had an intervention with me and said what I was doing to my mother was awful by taking these drugs. And I felt, I felt so horrible that I would endanger my mother, that I would endanger my family because I was so selfish to do drugs. And so I cried and I just felt awful. And then they got in touch with my parents and then she took me up to a room for me to sleep that night. And that's when the hallucinations started and they started really hard. And I started hallucinating that I was an old man. I started hallucinating all these different things. And then through some weird my mom worked in business software in, in central Ohio, and she knew a couple whose father lived in Segundrabad. And he and his buddy Samson came over, and they're both evangelical Christians, and they both prayed over me as, as I was hallucinating really heavily. And kind of the worst thing to ever do to someone when they're hallucinating is to pray over them. <laughs> because, like, before my hallucinations were just, I, I had screwed up and I had forgotten something. And as soon as they started praying over me, it was my soul that was at peril. And my soul was, was, was in danger. And that's when it got really bad. Once it got really bad and you were hospitalized, that's when the doctors were able to determine that you weren't a drug addict, in fact, that this was a reaction that your body was having to an anti-malarial drug called larium. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about that in a little bit because that's a key part. Uh, the history of larium is a key part of, of, of your story. But for a long time, because you had already constructed this identity for yourself from scratch, 
You were rejecting the Larium narrative. I thought everybody was lying to me in order to protect me from the old me. And that as soon as I was mentally healthy enough, they were going to tell me what I had really done. And so I sort of just, I knew that they were lying to me. Everything that they were saying, I was like, okay, okay. As soon as I'm, I'm ready, they'll tell me all of my sins and they'll really hit me. And so it created this really weird anxiety where I wanted to get better but I also didn't want to get better because as soon as I got better, it would I would find out the terrible things about myself. And so it took me a long time to realize that it was the larium, that it wasn't my fault, but it that old narrative clung to me, and I felt it thrashing like a phantom limb for a long time. To talk about the larium for a little bit, this is not a unique situation. By no means like a unique situation. When I first went on This American Life, my inbox sort of, filled up with people who had had similar experiences. And the more I did research into this drug, it's amazing. There are a lot of people who have committed suicide, aggression, paranoia, psychotic breaks are all sort of almost par for the course with this drug. And then that's not even taking into account the physical effects, which is like vertigo, which could be permanent, seizures, that sort of stuff. It's just sort of a nightmare drug. You talk a little bit about how this happens, and, and basically, as I understand it, it's a drug that is very capable of slipping through the barrier between the bloodstream, where it's supposed to be protecting you from malaria, and into the brain, where that's when it starts doing horrible things to you is when it gets into your brain. There are two theories, because we're people are, scientists are still trying to figure out how it does this, how it does what it does to the, to the brain. One theory is that it can block up two very specific uh, protein gap junctions and just sort of scatter the data that's supposed to go through those. And then the other theory is that it's just a neurotoxin and it just comes in and kills brain cells. There are scientists at Brown University who are using larium to figure out more of how these protein gap junctions in our brain work. So larium is being used to discover more about how our brains work. It's just also, unfortunately, a malaria drug at the same time. To circle back to the identity issues, this old narrative clung to you for a long time. And as you were trying to piece together who you were before this happened, you write about how you were hurt and confused because it didn't all come back at once. And you you had, at a, at a certain point, you had a rough idea of who you were but when you tried to like think deeper into your memories, there were these huge gaps. And you took that as evidence of like, oh my God, I'm still completely screwed up. And it took you a while before you realized that that's kind of how memory actually works for all of us. Yeah. At this point, it's, it's one of those things that it almost becomes a, an existential question, which is like, how do I know what I don't know? And so like people, people will say like, uh, well, do you have all your memory back? And I'm like, I have, I have no idea. I have a I have a pretty good sense of who I am now. I still have people who I bump into who I can't place who are before that time, but I'm not sure if that would be normal anyway. I've spent time in my hometown talking to people for an hour and not know who they are, but I'm not sure if that would be true usually. So it's the delirium has, has sort of left this constant anxiety in me where I'm not sure who I am or, or who I'll be in the next moment. Part of the, the turmoil as you were going through this, it sounds like when you were reaching out to the people and saying, look, I, I've had this in, you know, this incident, I've lost my memory, I'm, I'm, I've got most of it back. And you told them you had most of it back, even though you didn't. Part of the impediment towards recovery is that because of who you were before this, nobody took you seriously. Right. I was a person who had a penchant for saying absurd things. And like, this is so absurd. <laughs> and for it to happen to a person who enjoyed absurdity, 
seems too perfect in some ways. And, and so, like, it was hard. It was really hard to convince people that it had really happened. And also, since I was so desperately seeking out who I was, when people would say that stuff, I would, I would go with it. I would be like, yeah, just like me. And so it was really difficult to come to terms that it actually happened and that it hurt as much as it did. Uh, if you've ever seen that uh, Harrison Ford film regarding Henry. Yeah. 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 The Mike Nichols. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that idea that certainly it wasn't as stark as that. But there's a point where your own mother tells you, yeah, you were a jackass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's my mom. But it is. It's, it's sort of like I, I, I was very glib as a person. I was very protected and I was very glib. And one of the things was I just had to, I had to learn, I had to learn how to work around that. And it also gave me the opportunity to give that up, that it was, I didn't need to do that anymore. The idea that you were sort of reconstructing your identity, as painful a process as that was, and I mean, you write a lot about, for example, you know, you had a relationship with a woman, and after things went wrong, you just were like, I cannot deal with this right now, I, I can't be the person you need, and you just cut her off. And... Yeah, it, it was it was awful, but it was also... Like, I walked into a life that had emotional debts and financial debts. Like, I had a $3,000 credit card bill from Discover, which sometimes to me is the objective correlative. Because I didn't remember buying any of that stuff. (laughs) But I still was accountable for it. And that's the way it felt emotionally as well, that there were all these debts that were surrounding me. And I didn't know how to begin repaying them. I didn't know how to negotiate it. And so... In some ways, I just decided to declare bankruptcy and and walk from that relationship because it was too painful. There was a point where, and this is fairly early on in the process, so your parents gave you a recording of you as a college DJ, and you were like, okay, maybe this is who I am. (laughs) Let's try this. (laughs) Let's try that. I seem to know the lyrics to all these songs, so yeah, so it's this this CD, and like just listening to that persona that the old me put on when I was DJing, I figured, like, what I was going to do was sort of figure out who the person would be who would play that role. And that's sort of how I reconstructed that bit. And so what this story was for a really long time was like a, a funny anecdote, like a William Powell romp through craziness. And it took me a really long time to realize that, like, cleverness, funniness, uh, anecdote was was actually hurting my ability to function as a as a human that this desire to just go for the punchline and escape was hurting me as a human and hurting me as a writer and so i had to learn how to strip that away and so let's talk a little bit about the point at which this stops becoming a wacky anecdote from your past and starts becoming the foundation of a memoir i was getting my phd at the university of houston in fiction and i kept writing these stories where people had lost time either through bad relationships or through jail or through what have you. And and I realized, and they were sort of, they were hollow. They were hollow stories. I finally realized that I had to write the thing that I was avoiding writing because it was cropping up in everything I was writing, but I wasn't looking at it directly. I kept skittering it away. I had to like force myself to write past all the jokes and write past the need to be hugged after every sentence and patted on the head. I had to say, I, I had to write this so that it was it was painful again. Every cell in my body was screaming against that, but I, I it was the only way to actually write this. Because otherwise I would be I'd be doing a disservice to the experience. And so I had to take this experience seriously enough. 
again. So writing a memoir under the best of circumstances is a difficult process in trying to sort through the memories to, to grapple with whether you think you've got them as accurately as possible and as emotionally honest as possible. How much harder is it then when you're dealing with a period of your life where, particularly at the beginning, where you were constantly snapping in and out of consciousness, let alone like trying to figure out what was real and, and what was imagined? It was hard. It was hard. I wrote the first... 50 pages of this book nine times because I couldn't get the tone right because I kept shifting into present tense narration, present tense from where I was sitting at the computer and being able to comment on stuff. And finally I realized I had to strip all that scaffolding of knowing and I had to rewrite it as if I didn't know and engage again to that place where I didn't know what was going on and write it as the experience rather than as it was experienced. So I had to rewrite it. You know, Joanne Beard's essay, The Fourth State of Matter, was really important to me as a tuning fork because that essay is so remarkably good at doing that, at, at getting at the disruption of, our, of, of a life in the way that feels in a life. And that's, that's how I finally was able to get to this place to write this book. Since you write about how even when you're not directly confronting the trauma, your body was still having flashbacks, certainly on the first year anniversary and, and for some time afterwards. How much does that intensify once you start directly confronting the trauma? Yeah, it's, it's, October's are, aren't very good for me because I do. It, it, it is, it's like my body has a clock. It recognizes an anniversary even if I don't. Like my body is smarter than me. <laughs> We're just together through this. But yeah, my body will remember and then I'll I'll start to have panic attacks again and depression again. And it's it's weird. It's it's not fun. I think for a long time when I was smoking and drinking a lot, I could control my mood through those two chemicals. And when I had panic attacks, smoking is great for people with panic attacks because what you get to do is you have a socially acceptable way to leave the room and go stand outside by yourself and breathe for a while and then reinsert when you want to which is exactly what you want in a panic attack. You want to leave, stand, collect, and come back. And nicotine was great in, in letting me do that. And alcohol was great to deal with the insomnia. I could just drink myself to sleep. That's great if you don't want to ever deal with that drama. You just want to maintain, which is what I did for a long time. In the memoir, you discuss some of the bad therapy that you got. And I'm assuming that outside of the confines of the memoir, that eventually better therapy came along. Great therapy came along. But yeah, I had, I had a, an amazingly bad therapist. And it was hard because she had said a smart thing that struck me to the core and really helped me figure something out. But then immediately following that, like the next session, she said something so absurd and ridiculous that I realized she was way crazier than I was. She said, like, all the uh, convenience store workers in the world are the reincarnated souls of people who died in the Holocaust, and they need the banality of their existence to make sense of what happened in their past life, which is just such a remarkable statement. And to say that to a person who's struggling is even crazier. But yeah, she was, again, like $40 a session, so maybe I was getting what I paid for, but it was also great to know, to be able to look at something and say, whatever that is, I'm not that. That's nuts. Like, I'm not nuts. But yeah, I finally found a, a therapist at University of Houston who was just phenomenal. And what she did was she made me tell the story again and again and kept me on it 
even though my brain kept wanting to talk about all the other nonsense jabberings of that day. She would focus me, and that's that's sort of how I ended up writing this. And the, the approach I, I advocate with my students is like, watch the times that you flinch. Watch the times that you try to be smart. Watch the times that you try to corral meaning, because that's usually the place where you need to focus more. And you need to sit and, and look at that. I think that was the, the good advice that your crazy therapist gave you was at some point after you had gone off on the spiel during a session, she had said something like, you know, you can put this off by being clever all you want. But. And, that's, and that's the thing. Like, I really thought I could be more clever than my pain. I really thought that I could be smarter. And if I asserted control over smart, that smart could control my emotions and, and funny could control my emotions. Once I finally gave that up, it was it was great. <laughs> but it was really hard because then it was like, oh, right, I'm not in control. Because the thing is, your pain can wait you out. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and it's it's patient. It's totally patient. And you can try, and I think, I think a lot of us do, right, where we pressure seal awful things in our life with anecdotes and just sort of use the anecdotes as placeholders of real emotion and real pain. And act like we can just varnish over it with our cleverness and our charm and, and all of that. And, and yeah, pain will get you. Now, you mentioned the Joanne Beard essay that was really instrumental in helping you find a path to, to this story. Were there other memoirs or other memoirists who presented a model? I think Duke of Deception by Jeffrey Wolf is one of the greats. I especially feel like the opening three pages is so remarkable in just how he works himself into a place of not knowing and lets that not knowingness rule and and allows himself to admit to a really difficult emotion which is that he was glad that his father had died rather than one of his children that he was he was happy that his father had died and that it was a relief and that's that's a hard thing that you would that turns a lot of people off that people are like oh this is a bad person i don't want to read a bad person's memoir but it's like no that's actually exactly where you need to be so he, him and Vivian Gornick is just the torchbearer. It just feels like she says so many smart things about how we write. And Duras is the lover. I can talk about that forever because it's just such a, an amazing way to fracture a narrative so that you can feel the lifetime of a person thinking about this event and all the different ways this person has thought of this event. You can feel the, in the subtext, you can feel the weight of that brain aging throughout its life. And it's, it's, it's just so beautifully done. Those are my highlights. And then anything James Baldwin writes, I feel like, does that as well. Now, you've had a decade to rebuild your identity and to rebuild your relationships with the people who knew you beforehand. How do you feel about where you are now 10, I guess closer to 12 years later? Yeah. I, I, I love my life now. Like, it's really great. My wife is, is phenomenal and, and just like a person who's not going to just sort of let me be funny. Not that she doesn't laugh. She's one of the funniest people I know. But she also has, uh, keeps me grounded. Because when I get defensive, when I get, when I get cornered, I get glib and I get loud and I get garrulous. And that's sort of not an interesting way to live for me. And so it's been wonderful since. But going through this writing process it definitely was difficult on our relationship because I, you know, I spent two weeks reading the suicide notes that the CDC has of people who committed suicide on this drug. And so that's difficult as a day job. Would you say that in any way the writing of this memoir and the getting all this down, is that in any way an anchor of New David? What's really great uh, I found in this book is that it 
when I talk to people about the book, the conversation becomes not a conversation about amnesia or its pop culture references throughout everything, but instead how you deal with trauma and how people who have had real trauma in their lives put their lives together while still honoring that trauma, while still incorporating that trauma into their life. Because it's, it's an open wound. At any moment, it's just walking around with an open wound. There's no cauterizing it. It's just sort of learning how to live differently um, with it. And being angry with it is something I do a lot, but it's also just learning that some days this is going to hurt more than other days. For you, there's being angry with it on a personal level. And as you just mentioned before, and as part of the research, when you were reading the suicide notes that the CDC has collected of people who have been affected as you were by larium, there's also being angry with this on the level of how the hell is this thing out there yeah. being allowed to do these things to so many people. It's One of the ways I've started thinking about that is that malaria is something that's been around for 500,000 years, and it's affected our genetic record. It's, it's, it's this incredible parasite. Whenever there's a drug that promises to protect people from it, it's like landing on the moon. It's like climbing Everest. Like, finally, we have this drug. And so there is part of me that gives some slack to the CDC and the FDA and Walter Reed and LaRoche because they thought they had beaten malaria. The side effects they were getting, no one expected. And they were so off the chart in terms of what they were expecting that it was easy to dismiss them because people, people in their 20s, when they're traveling, of course they're going to be confused. Of course they're going to be stressed. Of course they're going to be a little paranoid. When the body toll started mounting, that's when I feel like someone should have noticed. Someone should have paid attention and taken this seriously. And, and people didn't for a really long time. For you and your life as you're dealing with this, you've got the memoir out now. And you mentioned that you were writing this while you were working on a PhD in fiction. People who, who read the story will know that you were in India to begin with working on, on research for fiction. Is fiction next for you? I mean, fiction's always, like, one of my great loves, and I love fiction so much. But it's difficult for me to write fiction in some ways because there's an architecture in fiction. Like, structure comes first for me in fiction, whereas the story, telling the story comes first for me in, in my nonfiction, and structure comes later. And I feel like that's a really hard way to write yourself into the story if you're thinking of architecture first. Like, I love Alice Munro and, and Tony Nelson, the way they these in intricately built stories. I just don't think, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I still uh, write fiction every once in a while, but it's it's not nearly as successful to me as, a, as art. But I also just figured out that that's just not where my strengths are. Well, the story that we do have now, the memoir, is very successful, I think, and I, I think people will get a lot out of it when they read it. It's called The Answer to the Riddle is Me. I've been talking with the author, David Stewart McLean. I'm Ron Hogan, and you've been listening to Life Stories. If you're subscribed to us through iTunes, thank you for that. And if you're not subscribed, it's very easy to do. And when you're there, um, please consider rating and reviewing the podcast and making it a little bit easier for others to find it as well. I hope you'll join us for another episode again soon, and take care.